Well, this morning we are going to complete the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. Uh, that should be around page number 1506 or so. And we're going to look at verses uh, 21 through 29 of chapter 7. Actually, that's 1,000, yeah, 506. Jesus, continuing to teach his disciples from the mountain, says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evil doers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand these words. Help us to know what it is we are to take from them. They are difficult words, God, and yet we know the gospel is true. Speak to us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On my first uh, wedding anniversary, my wife and I decided to uh, go to visit my brother-in-law and sister-in-law who lived in Wisconsin at the time. Uh, But for our actual anniversary, we flew into Chicago and we, we spent that time there. Um, It was a wonderful time. We got to see the Sears Tower, which is now called the Willis Tower, but that doesn't sound nearly as as cool. Um, But yeah, it was a very interesting, you know, landmark to visit. We took in a show at the Second City, and we even went to a Cubs game. Uh, I bought the tickets for the Cubs game several months in advance, and so we had our tickets ready to go. We hopped on the red line with all the other Cubs fans and went on down to Wrigley Field. When we got there, we bought some uh, knockoff Cubs jerseys so that we could fit in with the crowd, and we walked up to the gate to present our tickets to the person taking the tickets, and uh, she scanned them, and it gave the rejection sound. And so we're like, wait a minute, what's going on here? So she scanned them again, and Sure enough, we, we were rejected. I was pretty sure that I had real, genuine, authentic tickets for the Cubs game. And so we looked at our tickets. We looked at them very closely. And in fact, I did have real, 
genuine tickets for a Cubs game. Just was the next day's Cubs game. Unfortunately, we could not go to that game because my brother-in-law and sister-in-law were coming into Chicago to spend the day with us and to pick us up and take us back to Wisconsin. So that, that was out in terms of a plan. Plus, we didn't have any other plans for that day. So what we decided to do was to see if we could get a scalper to trade with us. And so we took our second level, third baseline seats that were awesome, overlooking classic Wrigley Field, and we traded those with a scalper for tickets out by the foul pole that weren't even next to each other. So then we tried to sit next to each other in other people's seats, but they would come and want their seats, and so then we would have to move, and then eventually we got tired of all that, and we just left the game probably around the seventh inning, uh, and that was a, uh, a fail on, on, my, on my part. You see, it's one thing to really, truly think you have what it takes to get inside a Major League Baseball stadium on a certain day. But it's quite another thing to have the real, genuine tickets for that game. And it's the same thing with faith. Many people think they have real, genuine faith. They are convinced that one day they will stand before God to get their tickets punched, only to hear Jesus say, I never knew you. So today's passage is obviously a very difficult one because it carries with it a very severe warning. Just like I should have double-checked my tickets to make sure I had real, genuine tickets for that game, Jesus is urging us to look at our own faith this morning so that we can make sure that we are putting our confidence in the right thing. Our first point this morning is that faith can look genuine when it's not. Our second point is, but faith will look genuine if it is. And finally, the essence of true faith. So first, faith can look genuine when it's not. So Jesus has spent a lot of time in the Sermon on the Mount unpacking what the evidence of true faith looks like in the life of a believer. In our services, we've emphasized the fact that true faith will produce right belief and right behavior. We even said last week that we would be able to recognize false teachers by their bad fruit of either false belief or false behavior. We said it was possible to believe all the right things and yet to have no character and to prove oneself a false teacher. Or that it was possible to have outward good character but to deny the clear teaching of the Bible and so prove oneself to be a false teacher. And then we said ultimately a true teacher is one who will keep the work of Jesus front and center. And we're going to see today why that's so important. But what if someone thinks he does have right belief and right behavior? And he shows up in heaven and hands his ticket over. And on the ticket it says, Dear Jesus, I believed all the right doctrines and I did my best to obey all of God's commands. Will that be enough? Listen to Jesus. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. So this is actually, I would say, probably one of the most terrifying passages in all of scripture. This is one of those passages that that cause us to tremble at God's word, as Isaiah says. Because here are people who are calling Jesus Lord, which means they have the right beliefs. They know who Jesus is because Jesus is Lord. Remember, Jesus is talking to Jews here. Matthew is writing to Jews here. And Jews had such reverence for the name of God that when they saw it written down in the Old Testament, they wouldn't read his name aloud. They would substitute his name for the Lord. So it's not insignificant that these Jews are calling Jesus Lord. For Jews to stand before Jesus on the day of judgment and call him Lord is for them to recognize that Jesus is God. But they're not just calling him Lord. They're calling him Lord, Lord. Another thing that Jesus and Matthew's audience would have picked up on is that For a Jew to repeat someone's name like this as a way of communicating love and devotion and intimacy. We see this all throughout scripture when Abraham is about to sacrifice Isaac, the angel of the Lord comes and calls out to him, Abraham, Abraham. When God calls to Moses at the burning bush, he says, Moses, Moses. When Samuel goes to live with Eli and he's still a little boy and God calls him to be a prophet in the middle of the night, he calls out, Samuel, Samuel. When David's son, Absalom, dies, David cries and he weeps and he says, Absalom, Absalom. When Jesus is on the cross, suffering for the sins of the world, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus is telling us that these people not only have right belief, but their beliefs are sincere. These are people who think they have every reason to believe that they really know God. In our day, this would be someone who prayed the prayer. She asked Jesus to come into her heart and to be her personal Lord and Savior. She wept and cried and went forward at the altar call. Listen to how the crowds respond to Jesus after he finishes the sermon. We're told when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, but not as their teachers of the law. See, they were amazed at his teaching. They recognized his authority because he's not quoting all the rabbis. No, he's speaking to them as the ultimate lawgiver. And now here in this text, we also see that he is the ultimate judge. They were in awe of his undeniable power and authority. And Matthew does not say that they put their faith in him. Matthew does not say that they even put his words into practice. He says they were just in awe of him. And Jesus knows this. 
That's why he's warning them that there will be people who call him Lord, Lord. They will recognize his power and authority. They will have right belief. They might love and admire Jesus. They might be impressed with his teaching, but they're lost. And Jesus goes on to tell us they might even have done great things in his name. They say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? These aren't just people who tried their hardest. These are people who did great things for God. They served as elders and deacons. They gave money faithfully to the church, to the Christian school and the gospel mission. They served on committees and prayer meetings, all in the name of Jesus. So this is really confusing. On one hand, Jesus says that only those who do the will of the Father will enter the kingdom of heaven. But on the other hand, what more? What more could Jesus want for them? I mean, no one's perfect, right? And here are some people who know Jesus as Lord, Lord, and who've done all kinds of great things, yet he tells them that he never knew them, and then he calls them evildoers? Then he goes on to tell a story about two men who build two houses. He says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Notice, Jesus says nothing about what their actual houses look like. Yes, one man has heard Jesus' words and put them into practice, and the other has not, because one has built his house on the rock, and the other has built his house on the sand. But we really don't know who is who until the storm comes. Which means both of these houses could look exactly the same on the outside. Jesus is warning us here that it's possible to stand before Jesus on the day of judgment and to be just like me and Anne on the red line, happy and smiling with all the Cubs fans, heading to the game with our tickets in hand. It's possible to have affection for Jesus and to have a house that looks like it's put together with the right beliefs and the right behaviors and to hear Jesus say, I never knew you away from me evildoers. Because faith can look genuine when it's not. But we can't forget that faith will still look genuine if it is. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven. Jesus! What about grace? What about forgiveness? So this passage can be very frightening for people, especially if you happen to be somebody with a very tender conscience. And one temptation is to try to comfort people 
with this passage by emphasizing God's grace and forgiveness so much that we actually end up reversing what Jesus says here. People will reason that because God's grace is infinite and he forgives every sin, therefore, to do the will of the Father is simply to believe that God forgives you. As if, there, as if Jesus is not saying anything about the way we live our lives. But a few verses later, Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So it's clear. It's very clear from this context, from the context of the Sermon on the Mount, from the context of the book of Matthew up until this point, that at least part of what it means to do the will of the Father is to put his words into practice. This has been a reoccurring theme. Some of you may remember we did a whole sermon on the theme verse of Matthew back in chapter 1, which says this, She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And we said on that day that what it means to be saved from our sins is to have both the penalty of our sin removed, because we are truly forgiven for every sin we've ever committed or every sin we ever will commit. But we're also saved from the power of sin, which means we are free from slavery to sin. We have a new master. We have a new heart. To be saved from our sin also means that he makes us into the kind of person who does the will of the Father and who puts Jesus' words into practice. Our song of response today is going to be Rock of Ages. And in Rock of Ages, uh, I think the second line says, Let the water and the blood from the riven side which flowed, O be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me of its guilt and power. Both things. When we are saved, when Jesus saves us from our sins, we are saved from the guilt of sin and the power of sin. Later in Matthew, Jesus tells us a parable about the kingdom of heaven. And he says that inside the kingdom of heaven, there will be weeds and wheat together. Another picture he gives of the kingdom is there's both sheep and goats in the kingdom. And he's not talking about believers inside the kingdom and unbelievers outside the kingdom. He's talking about believers in the kingdom and false believers inside the kingdom. And then, then he says this. He says, as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age, the Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. So at the end of the age, false believers inside the church will be told, I never knew you. The, the righteous, the truly righteous, will remain. Later in Matthew 16, Jesus says, For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with the angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. 
Now we know unbelievers are going to be judged because of what they've done, but here it's talking about believers because it's talking about them getting a reward. 1 John 2.4 says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. So they think they know Jesus, but Jesus doesn't know them. As James, the brother of Jesus, puts it so simply, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And then there's everything we've already said in the Sermon on the Mount, right? We must, our our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You cannot serve two masters. Seek his kingdom and his righteousness. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. I mean, this is this theme is so clear and so pregnant. Article 24 of the Belgic, Belgic Confession, which we read earlier, says it perfectly. It says, So then, it is impossible for this holy faith to be unfruitful in a human being, seeing that we do not speak of an empty faith, but of what Scripture calls faith working through love, which moves people to do by themselves the works that God has commanded in the Word. So we know that we must have right belief and that if we're truly saved, right behavior will flow from that belief. But what Jesus is trying to do in this passage is he's trying to help us see that our hope is not in our right belief or our right behavior. Which takes us to our third point, the essence of true faith. Okay, these these sentences that I'm about to say right now are thick, so I want to say them slowly and repetitively because I want us all to grasp this, okay? So right belief and right behavior are necessary as evidence of true faith, but they are not the ground or the essence of true faith. Let me say that again in a different way. Everyone who has true faith has right belief and right behavior, but not everyone with right belief and right behavior necessarily has true faith. So I have a picture for it, even. Let's get that on the screen, okay? So the outside circle is everyone who who thinks, right, that I am a Christian. They think they're a Christian because they believe what Christians believe and because they do their best to act like Christians act. But only those who have true faith, right? So there's a smaller circle inside this larger circle. Now earlier, Jesus said, every Good tree bears good fruit, and every bad tree bears bad fruit, and everyone in this circle believes that they are a good tree because they have some good fruit that they can point to. But in this passage, if you hear nothing else, hear what I'm about to say. In this passage, Jesus is helping us see that our hope for eternal life cannot be our fruit. Our belief, our behavior, our admiration of Jesus, our love for God and others can be evidence of faith, but it is not the ground or the essence of our faith. So what is the essence of true faith? And how can we know that when we stand before Jesus on Judgment Day that he will accept us? First, we have to get the order right. Right belief and right behavior proceed from true faith. 
So when Jesus says, only those who do the will of my Father in heaven will enter the kingdom of heaven, and only those who hear my words and put them into practice are like the man who built his house on the rock, he's talking about good works as evidence of true faith. Because only true faith can actually produce good works. You can't actually do the will of the Father without true faith. You can't actually put his words into practice unless you have true faith. In Romans, Paul says, For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. The writer of the Hebrews says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. This includes caring for the poor, starting a homeless shelter for women and children, fighting against injustice. All of that is sin if it does not proceed from true faith. This is why people who call Jesus Lord, Lord, and say they have prophesied and cast out demons and performed miracles in his name are called evildoers. Not because those things are not good, but because they do not proceed from true faith. All kinds of selfish reasons exist to do the right thing apart from faith. The desire for comfort and security and respect is enough reason for most people to avoid lying, adultery, addiction, and murder, or even to pursue a life of religion and self-sacrifice. So how can we know then, Pastor Patrick, that we have true faith? In John chapter 6, Jesus says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. See, the kind of faith that truly does the will of the Father and that puts the words of Jesus into practice is the kind of faith that simply looks to the Son and believes in him. And the people in our passage, they are looking to their affection for Jesus and their good works. They're saying, Jesus, you're my Lord, Lord. Look at all I've done in your name. But true faith looks away from ourselves. It looks away from our sin. It looks away from our good works. And it looks just to Jesus and believes in him. Another aspect of true faith is not that we know God, but that we are known by God. Remember, Jesus tells these people, I never knew you. Paul, writing to the Galatians, says, But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? When Jesus tells these people who call him Lord, Lord, that he never knew them, it's not like he doesn't know who they are. He's God. He knows all things, but he doesn't know them personally. He doesn't know them as one of his adopted children. When he was dying on the cross, he was not thinking of them. See, true faith doesn't say, but I know God. True faith looks to the Son, believes in him, and says, oh God, you know me. And guess what? When we look to God and we say, oh God, you know me, guess what he knows about me? He knows my sin. He knows how fake I am. He knows how afraid I am. How prideful I am. He knows all my thoughts. And it's terrifying to be known by God. 
but it's so sweet and so beautiful. Because when you're known by God, and he knows all of that about you, and you know that you're his child, because you are looking to Jesus and believing in him, it is the most beautiful thing in the world. Finally, true faith clings to the rock. Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like the wise man who built his house on the rock. Notice a couple things. First, the ability to hear Jesus' words and put them into practice does not enable this man to build his house on the rock. Right? He doesn't first build his house and then move the house to the rock. He goes to the rock. And he builds his house on the rock. Second, notice he builds his house on the rock, not a rock. There is a true faith once for all handed down to the saints. There is a true savior, the God-man, Jesus Christ, and all others are false. Third, the emphasis is not on the house. We're not told how big the house is, how nice the house is, but we're told where the house is built. The thief on the cross built his house on the rock. And because of that, when the rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, it did not fall. No matter how weak or shabby you feel like your house is. Because it had its foundation on the rock. And the storm of suffering, the man who built his house on the rock doesn't say to himself, why is this happening to me? He knows storms are coming. Instead, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Oh Jesus, I am so afraid this pain will make me want to deny you. Please keep me from falling. And the storms of temptation, this man doesn't cling to his house and say to himself, I'm not that kind of person. I would never become a drunk or cheat on my wife. No, he clings to the rock and the rock keeps him from falling apart. He prays, Father, do not lead me into temptation, but deliver me from evil. I am so weak, I could so easily become those things. Please keep me from falling. In the storm of judgment on the final day, he doesn't say, Lord, Lord, I prayed the prayer. I believed. I asked Jesus into my heart. I went to church every Sunday. I was a deacon. No, he says, Lord, Lord, you have promised me that I am one of your sheep. And you have promised that Jesus died to save sinners like me. True faith doesn't even say, I believe Jesus died for me. It says, Jesus has promised me that he died for me. Do you see the difference? The first way of saying it, while true, is actually grounding our salvation back in us. My belief, what I believe. The second way of saying it is clinging to the rock and grounding our salvation in Jesus and in his promises. I heard a pastor say one time that, that we should never stand before the law, the, the, God and say, because I, no. 
when we stand before God, we will all say, because he, because he. Listen to King David. He says, for in that day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and he will set me high upon the rock. And again, but the Lord has become my fortress and my God, the rock in whom I take refuge. Christian, who is your rock? To look on the sun and believe in him and to be known by him is to cling to Jesus as the rock of your life. His life for your life, his death for your death, his resurrection, the hope for your resurrection. And when we stand before him on that day, we will not say, Lord, Lord, I believe, look at all the things I did. We will simply say, I am a wretched sinner, but Jesus is the rock of my salvation. He is my hope. He is my refuge in the storm. And he has promised me that I belong to him. And if that's our faith, then we can know We can know for sure that no matter what, we are united to Christ. No matter what. Even in a state of backfallenness, even when we fall into sin, even when we think all of our good works are making God happy with us, right? If if Jesus is our rock, we can always know that that and that alone is the ground and the essence of our salvation. And that as we cling to him, he will direct our path. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we're so grateful that this passage warns us not to put our hope in us. Not to put our hope in our right beliefs or our right behaviors, but to put our hope in Christ, in Christ alone, that he is the one who saves completely. He came to save his people from our sins and we can hope in him for all things, for forgiveness, for transformation, because he has made promises that we can know are true simply because he has spoken them to us in his word. We thank you for this in Jesus' name, amen.